You are listening to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast with Monica Louie, episode number 58. Welcome to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast, where we help online entrepreneurs grow their influence, amplify their impact, and scale their businesses all the way to seven figures. And now, here's your host, Monica Louie. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining me for the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. I'm Monica Louie, and welcome to episode 59. I am so excited to bring you another incredible interview. My guest today has coached hundreds of seven and eight figure entrepreneurs to help them lead their teams and scale their businesses. But before we dive into the interview, if you're new to the podcast and don't know me yet, then welcome. I'm Monica Louie. I'm a Facebook and Instagram ads strategist, and I run a successful ads agency where my team and I manage ads for six and seven figure online businesses. I'm also the creator of Flourish with Facebook ads, which is my online training program that teaches my step-by-step system for creating campaigns that convert. My team and I have managed more than $2 million in ad spend and served more than 800 students and clients. And we are in the trenches every single day, keeping a pulse on what's working now in the world of Facebook and Instagram ads. And while I absolutely love teaching about Facebook and Instagram ads, the goal of this podcast is to discuss what it really takes to build a seven-figure online business. And of course, growing a team to help you scale your business is a huge part of that. And my guest today is the thought leader and expert for entrepreneurial management. I am so excited to bring you my interview with Chris Plackey. Known for her simple, honest, and authentic style, Chris has poured her life's work into learning about, understanding, and then guiding leaders through the tricky path of learning how to lead a team. In a space where there is a lot of noise and advice, Chris has designed the how-to of team leadership, through her Lead Your Team roadmap. Chris earned her leadership stripes in a corporate startup culture and was quickly and consistently recognized as a top performing leader year after year. Despite the changes in the market and in the business, Chris consistently built teams that not only won together, but stuck together. Chris and I cover so much in this episode, including... The five key areas entrepreneurs need to develop in order to grow a successful and wildly profitable business, the mindset shift business owners need to have when it comes to hiring and growing an effective team, how to ensure that we're communicating our expectations clearly and what to do when mistakes happen, the top mistakes leaders make when delegating to their teams, how to create a culture of accountability when it's time to let someone go and how to do so with grace and how to attract top talent to your organization. And of course, a whole lot more. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. So let's get right into it. As always, you can find all the links and resources that are mentioned in today's episode at monicalouie.com slash 59. That's M-O-N-I-C-A-L-O-U-I-E.com slash the number 59. All right, here's my interview with Chris Plackey from chrisplackey.com. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I am super excited for our conversation. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Well, so I am really excited to dive into your story, first of all, and hear all about how you became an entrepreneur yourself and, and came to build this business around helping others build and lead their team. 
You bet. So it's, you know, I'm sure like everyone else that you talk to, it, it has its interesting twists and turns. I don't think I would have ever thought I would have been an entrepreneur if you'd met me, you know, 20 some odd years ago. I took a sort of traditional path. I got out of college. I got a sales job. I was good at it. That sales job turned into a manager gig. And then, but through the process of working in sales, I really learned that I loved helping people make difficult decisions. And so that led me to then managing the same people that I was, had been peers with. And I loved managing. I loved coaching and helping people get better at their jobs. And I did that pretty well. And so then I took a little break. I had a baby and that was at the sort of the crash of 2000, 2001. And when I came back to work, I decided to come back in as a training, in a training role. And so that was really when I started to operate in a business as a coach. And so for many years, I worked with managers of different teams to help them be more effective so that their teams would perform better. And all this time I was studying coaching. So it was like this parallel life that I was living. And it was in about 2003, 2004, I started having these little fantasies of like, what would it be like to just do this and not actually have to work (laughs) for a company, right? Like do it all by myself. And my role just kept progressing and I got into a senior leadership role and I then wrote a proposal to create a performance coaching team for the company. And it was accepted. And I built a team of six other performance coaches who were all former operations leaders. So they weren't what you would have in a traditional company is like people with learning experience or training experience. These were all actual former learning operations leaders. And we did that for several years. And so what was so cool about that for me is I here I worked in a very, what we called entrepreneurial company. It was, a, it was a startup, it was a big startup. And I had the opportunity to really test a lot of my work without being an entrepreneur yet, right? And then in 2012, the business that I worked for, the whole industry went through a massive shift And so I actually volunteered to be part of the initial layoff. And I saw that as my opportunity to really launch my own business because by then I really knew that the ideas I had and the work that I did applied and was effective. And so then through my own journey, I just kept occasionally working with entrepreneurs who were running larger businesses who were struggling with leading and managing. And it just became very obvious and a perfect fit for me because. Most entrepreneurs never learn how to lead. You know, they learn how to generate revenue, how to market, how to figure out their niche. You know, they figure out their and their geniuses. I mean, online business leaders are so incredible in what they're able to do in the world and their reach. But most of them have never actually learned the mechanics of leading a team. And so It's not just, you know, hiring and firing that I do with my clients. It's the confidence to lead and feel secure in your role and really command presence with your team. So those are the areas that now I spend all my time on. And I just, I love, I do it every day. I coach entrepreneurs who are leading businesses. Most of them are virtual, but I also have a lot of brick and mortar clients 
who are running their businesses, you know, face to face, which has certainly been interesting right now too, in this time that we're all in. Well, I relate so much to what you said because, I mean, when I decided to build my own business, I saw eventually that I would have a team around myself. But in my corporate career, I like you came from my corporate background, but in my corporate career, I didn't have that managerial experience. Mm-hmm. And I, like you said, I feel like a lot of people are in that space where you know they are ambitious and go after building. You know, they have the entrepreneurial spirit and want to build mm-hmm. their own thing. But people are so much a part of it, especially as you want to grow and scale. So I know you, you teach about your Lead Your Team Roadmap. Can you explain what that is and what's involved with that? Yeah. So I use the word roadmap, but you know, we jokingly sort of visually have it in our head like a Disneyland map. So for anybody who's ever been to Disneyland, you know, there's all the different sort of parts of leadership that you eventually have to land in, which is how we, the Disneyland map will say the same thing, right? Like here's Fantasyland and here's Tomorrowland and here's Adventureland. But eventually you want to get to all of them to really have that great experience. So I have five key areas that I believe every entrepreneur should develop in order to be able to scale a business without being exhausted, burnt out, impatient, you know, all of the other things. Because there's a lot of people who grow very successful, very big, high generating revenue businesses, but they burn out and they can't, they don't want to do it anymore. And so that's my hope is to always help my clients be able to build the business that you want, generate the revenue that you want, but also build the team that gets you there so that you're not, you know, exhausted and barely crying, you know, crawling across the finish line. So the five areas that we focus on are first of all, your time. Um, We're notoriously terrible with time as entrepreneurs. We work all the time. We don't budget our time which also impacts how we relate to and work with our employees and how we think about their time. The second part of this map is your money. Entrepreneurs love money and they love to talk about money, but oftentimes they're not really good at thinking about money and how and the thoughts they have about abundance, how they pay people, how they bonus people. I was just talking with a client right before this call about feeling guilt about the fact that she's making five, six, seven times more money than her employees are. She feels guilt about that, right? So the relationship you have with money is incredibly important to flush out, especially as you start making more and more and more of it. The third area that I is on our map is the team. How do you hire them? How do you fire them? How do you onboard them? How do you train them? You know, what do you do with them when they don't agree with you, when they don't get on board, when they disappoint you? You know, all of the mechanics of that relationship with everybody on the team and designing a team with intention that then fosters a culture that you really want to have, which brings us to the fourth one, which is the relationship you have with your business. And I really like to emphasize that you know, there's you and then there's your business. And as entrepreneurs, it's initially, they're both one and the same. And that's hard to discern as you're growing is, you know, you live and breathe your business. And, but after you get to seven figures or so, 
we have to really start to treat that business as its own entity and imagine, you know, sort of visually like it's sitting next to you now at the table. It's not just you representing it. Now you're the custodian of this business and we have to consult the business. And that's why I really teach so many of the processes that you have to put into place in order to scale and lead your company because your business needs its own brain. And you're the, you're the one who has to help cultivate and build that. And then the last element, the last relationship is really the relationship you have with yourself as a founder and as an entrepreneur. How do you take care of yourself? You know, I famously ask all of my new clients, you know, is your car clean? (laughs) When was the last time you went to the dentist? You know, your personal care, understanding your mind, your attitude, your energy, like how you spend your time on yourself is as important. You know, do you even enjoy time on your own? Do you have things you do that aren't work? related. So these are all the five, those are the five areas that we work on for you in your business to help you really savor your success and be really thrilled and flourish as you would say, right, Monica? And then (laughs) also, but build a business that is scalable and and interesting and has people in it that really um, take after and model the vision and values that you have. That's great. Okay. I love that so much. I'd love to dive in um, I definitely want to spend a lot of time on team, but can we go through each one? So for time, what is the first thing that you look at if somebody is is struggling with, you know, feeling like they don't have control over their time or they don't have enough time, you know, is a big one that we face. Where do you go when that seems to be the big issue? So it's funny, it was a conversation I was just having actually with the same person about talking about guilt. <laughs> We're getting out a few things. She came to the call and she had all these papers. She's like, I just have all this stuff. I have all these things. And she has a a brick and mortar business. So she's starting to reopen. She has a ton of things that she's thinking about. So the first thing I look at with time is people's schedule. Like how well do you organize yourself? Are you exhausted? I had a client who said to me once, you know, time divorced me a long time ago. (laughs) So it's just the, first of all, it's the relationship. Do you feel haggard? Do you feel like other people don't help you? So you're doing a lot of work because you're not delegating, which speaks to time. So an immediate remedy that we look at is really what is the way that you think about your business and you plan for your own time, not to mention how you manage and support players on your team with their time with your meetings. Like some people have incessant amounts of meetings and really lose time. They're not effective. Other people don't have any, which also can be ineffective, right? But they're so afraid of meetings because they take too much time. So yeah, so there's a whole host. When someone starts working with me, I run them through a series of audit questions that we ask about their relationship with time and all the other elements actually that I've mentioned. So that's the first thing I look for, Monica, is their level of exhaustion. Okay. That's a good indicator. And when you brought up meetings though, that got me thinking, so what do you have a agenda? Like, so the way that I run my meetings is I have weekly team meetings with just my admin team about the projects that we're working on and moving forward. And then I have a monthly 
all hands team meeting where I bring in all of my team members and we talk about, you know, what we worked on over the prior month and our wins, client wins, you know, things that that we're moving forward, updates on on projects and things like that. And we recognize other team members. So I'm just curious if you have any kind of schedule, you know, every single business is going to be different and every probably, you know, need is going to be different, but any key points that kind of are similar, no matter what kind of business you're running. Yeah. I actually like what you're doing. I think that's lovely. I think that a weekly touch point with your first team is the expression that we use a lot, right? So the people who report to you directly, there should be a weekly meeting. My preference is always either Monday morning or Friday because it's like kicks off or finishes the week and then sets up the next one, depending on how you want to evaluate or you, you want to look at it. But I don't think those meetings need to be long. I think they can be handled pretty quickly as long as you have a tight agenda and you manage the agenda. So your meetings that you're hosting right now, just in terms of how you're bringing everybody together, I think that's perfect. I think every leader should have a touch point with their team once a week where everyone has a chance to share what they're up to, what their action items are for their division or department. And then everybody goes about their business and gets it done. Having a monthly call like you're doing or a monthly meeting is awesome. I love that you're scheduling employee recognition and making that more of a whole, we're all part of this. This is what we've accomplished together, summary and then projection. The one other one that I would always recommend people are doing is the one-on-ones. And one of the things that I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs do is they do a lot of group thinking. And so that means we pull the team together to help you think about what you want to do. And it really is... That's honestly why I think everybody needs a coach who's an entrepreneur because or a mastermind, somewhere where you go, where you help yourself work through your strategies, your future thoughts, your concerns, and not doing that in down thinking with the team. And so those one-on-ones is that opportunity for you to connect very closely and a little more formally with people who report to you. So in the team meeting, that's about the work that needs to be done. But in those one-on-ones, that's about their personal goals, their personal benchmarks that they need to achieve through their work. And honestly, it creates a much more appropriate place for feedback and you to address anything that maybe isn't actually going well. So I would say all three of those. Now, how frequently you do those is always going to be up to the cadence of your business. I do think a team meeting every week is critical, but then the all hands, if you do that monthly or quarterly and the one-on-ones, if you do those weekly or every other week or once a month, that really will depend on how quickly your business moves. Okay. That's great. Thank you. And I'm also doing the one-on-ones with my team members. At what point do you suggest that we start to, as you know, the CEO, the leaders of our business, do we start to kind of move those one-on-ones off to maybe you know another team member who's kind of more in a leadership role? Is there like a certain number of, you know, once your team gets this big that you should begin to, you know, start to move maybe some of those off of your plate? What does that look like? That's a great question. I would say if you aren't doing one-on-ones, so let's say someone has a team of 10, right? Let's just go with that. If you aren't doing one-on-ones yet, you want to start doing them and modeling what you want them to look like first, right? So let's say you do that for 90 days. 
then I would say it's reasonable to ask whoever else you have in your business who has direct reports to take over the one-on-one. But you'll always have one-on-ones to do, right? Because there will always be people who report to you as the CEO. So you always keep your first team and do those one-on-ones. But then I would definitely be delegating those out. If you've already been doing one-on-ones and you have a structure that you want them to follow, then you could start doing that right away. But then in your one-on-ones with the people who are doing other (laughs) one-on-ones, what you want to keep in mind is that becomes you know, a KPI or something that you're reviewing with them on how are their coaching feedback sessions going with their team. Because what we want to be careful of when we manage managers is that we don't skip over the manager skill set and we just focus on the employee all the time. We want to make sure that when we're having a one-on-one with a manager that reports to you, that you're talking to them about their skill their challenges and not just the production of the team. I hope that makes sense the way I said Oh, that. definitely. Uh, no, I think that's great because as we think about, you know, as we start to grow our teams and we need to learn these skills for ourselves, as we're bringing people up into leadership positions in our own businesses, we need to make sure that we're equipping them with those skills as well. For sure. Absolutely. And it makes your job so much easier long-term when you do that because... If you're building a bench of strong leaders, then you don't have to be the one that is always the one, which I know is a big deal for entrepreneurs, right? Like, why does it always have to be me? <laughs> right. That's, well, that's, it's, it's, your work is to develop the people underneath you so it doesn't have to be you. Do you have any tips for helping to build that trust and ability to make decisions you know, in place of you? One thing that I've been doing is asking my team, you know, if there's if there's an issue that you bring to me, you know, your idea, what is your, you know, suggestion, recommendation, you know, and then if they don't, if they just bring up an issue, then I kind of go back to them and say, well, what do you think we should do? How do you think we should handle this? So is there any other tips that you have for helping to kind of coach your team members to help make those decisions, you know, first with you, but then eventually to be able to know that you can trust them to make those decisions on their own? Yeah, it's the biggest, most challenging part, right? I mean, that really is (laughs) the hardest part of growing a company is for entrepreneurs, like it's so much more personal, as you said, right? This is your baby. This is the thing you've built. So the hiring process of whoever you put in as your director team or you know your leadership team is beyond critical. It is essential that you have the elements down on who you put in those roles. And if the expectation is they will be managing other people in your business, You have to be really, really clear about what you expect of a leader who works for you, not just an employee, right? So then you model, just like you said. And then what we do is is we do the only way to let people build their wings is to encourage them to do exactly what you said, which is if you have a challenge, bring me your solution. We will vet your solution, right? I'm not going to give you answers. And that's tough when you're sitting on your hands knowing you could solve something in two seconds (laughs) and you have to sit there and watch them think, right? Like process the answer when you know it. And the other half of this is actually a course that I'm working on that I haven't finished yet about 
you know, that I really do believe that your ability to make more money and grow is on the other side of your tolerance for small mistakes. So many of my clients who are making, you know, two, $3 million lose their minds over really small errors. And it causes you then to swoop back in. So to your point, right, when you're asking someone to find a solution, you're trusting them to do that. But if at any time you get frustrated and you think, no, 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 you didn't do that right. And you swoop in and solve it. You've now really set back their confidence and that relationship. And it's tough. I really do understand that's tough to negotiate, but that's the work you have as a leader because the challenges you're solving at 1 million or 2 million in your business or 400,000 in your business are not going to be anywhere near what you're solving at 10 million. Those are the speed bumps you have to be able to go through. So, you know, empowering and really supporting your leaders to make choices and then making it relatively safe if they screw it up so that they won't give up and then just defer to you every single time something comes up so because they don't trust themselves to do it right. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. And I'm so glad you're making a course about this. Um, <laughs> because I definitely, <laughs> I can definitely relate. Yeah, yeah. I think if I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on that, right? Like that's a really, <laughs> and it's normal. Like it's okay if you, you know, because I have so many entrepreneurs who say, I think my expectations are too high. I think, you know, I just can't let go. I don't know how to trust people. (laughs) It's normal, you know, and it's the growth process that you have to go through to get to where I know, you know, most of your listeners want to get to is building a company that doesn't require them all the time in the ways that it requires of you right now. So you're building a whole course around this. So, um, but just at a high level, how can we begin to shift our mindset around it or mm. kind of lessen? Cause you know, for me at least, and I will admit, I am definitely a perfectionist and I want, you know, my team to provide, you know, super high level quality of service and work. And so I will be the one, you know, I will definitely point out when I see things that are not at the level that mm-hmm. we want to, you know, provide for our clients, for our customers. So is it, I'm sure it's a mindset shift, but then also like tactically, what can we do? Is it regarding changing the process to make sure that we're closing those, you know, loops? Or is it just that we need to kind of lower the expectations? Is that the solution? Well, let me answer that if you don't mind in in an example, because I think that's the easiest way to help anybody with it is, so I was coaching a client earlier this week and she works with patients. So she's a, she's a physician and she left some instructions for someone in her company to handle something because her the day the following day was the day she's not in the office. So she left some instructions for something to be handled and it was something that had to be sent out so that a patient's diagnosis could be made. Well, at the end of the day it didn't get done. And so then the sample that had to be sent out was no longer good. It was bad, right? Which had an impact, direct impact on the patient. So my client was losing her mind. She's like, this is so unacceptable. This is terrible. And there were two people involved who didn't do the job that was supposed to be done. They made the mistake, which we could consider to be sort of egregious. It was a big deal. And they both sort of were like, well, I didn't know. 
right? They both kind of did the whole throwing up the hands. Oh, I didn't know. I thought she was doing right. Like, which I think makes people even more incensed when that happens. And so then she did what, what most of my clients do, which is she just took care of it. She called the patient. She got a new sample. She got it sent. She took care of it, right? So of course, that's what these two other people who dropped the ball are happy with because now they are off the hook, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's the standard scenario. So what I told her, I said, no, no, no. So next time, no, <laughs> you're not doing it. And what we need to do is this, the one person who really dropped the ball my client said to her, well, just next time, you know, you need to follow a better process. That was the, pretty much the gist of the conversation. And I said, no, what we need to do is have you sit with her and have her show you her process. So we can't just tell her, hey, you need a better process so this doesn't happen again. We need to say that you need to come up with a better process so this doesn't happen again or follow the process I've already put in place if that already exists. And tomorrow at 10, AM, you're going to show me how you're going to do it. And then we also have to tell, in this case, this was egregious enough that she agreed that if it happened again, it would mean like a progressive discipline conversation. So Monica, the two things that are usually missing when we have people on the team who do make mistakes is one, we don't hold them actually to resolving it because we fix it. So we need to have enough patience to have them go through the process of resolution, even if it's post something being done. Like it might be over with, but I would still say, I need to walk through this with you now so that we know this doesn't happen again. Right. And then the second half of that is accountability. Oftentimes and most times what's missing is accountability to the mistake. And if it's an egregious mistake that has a dramatic impact, there has to be some level of accountability for that. If it's a minor mistake, but there tends to be 12 of them in a week, that still adds up to a drain on business resources and your time, right? But that's the part that so many entrepreneurs especially don't want to deal with because you run a small team. Like, I don't want to make people upset and like tell them they may, I might write them up. I don't want to you know, rock the apple cart or whatever that expression is, right? Like, and so then they don't address it and then nothing changes. And so now you're paying an employee to do the job that they're not doing very well. And you're paying yourself to do their job, but you do better. So the two solutions are, you have to have them demonstrate how they'll resolve it without you fixing it. And then there has to be accountability if it happens again, quote unquote, right? And that's the only way people learn that you mean it, that you mean it. And then I think you also just have to have a level of understanding like mistakes are going to happen in a business, mistakes are going to happen, but there has to be like, these are the ones that we can handle. And these are the ones that are unacceptable. You know what I mean? Like some things it's like, oh, that was an oversight. We got to fix that. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Of course. So how do we, as we're beginning to build our team, how do we like set those expectations? Mm. Well, how do we, first of all, communicate our expectations clearly? Because I know for myself, sometimes I'll think, 
I was super clear. <laughs> and so where where was this misinterpretation that occurred here? And so I'm trying to do better at, you know, making sure that my team, you know, what I'm spitting out, my team is also receiving. So how can we first communicate our expectations clearly and effectively? And then how can we create that culture of accountability in our team? Oh, those are huge questions. <laughs> So the good news is, how do you create expectations? First of all, you have to know what they are yourself. And so what I do with my clients when I first start working with them is I walk them through six steps. And the first step is identifying and clarifying the vision that you have for your business. Then the second step is your values. The third step is expectations. Expectations and the way that I use that word is really clarifying the behaviors that are expected of people who work for me. And they have to be born out of the values that you have. That's the only way they work. So that's why we need to know what your values are. So expectations really govern people's behavior. And the reason I stress it is because a majority of the challenges that you're going to have managing a team are going to be related to behavior and not skill. And so... Skill is easily measured because you also have people producing for you. They do stuff that's much easier to measure. They did or they didn't, right? It's the more the behavior stuff that gets challenging. So, but if you're also talking about, which I think you are, right? Like setting expectations for how you want something done, like a job, like a project or, you know, a task. That is really in how we delegate. And the way that we delegate well is you have to be incredibly clear about the result that you want. So I want this done. I want this to look like this. I want this completed. And then you have to be clear about when you want it done. And then you have to be super specific about the expectations you have around how it will be done. If you're going to manage that as well. Sometimes we have things we just want people to have get done for us and we don't really care how they do it. If you care how it's done, then it's incumbent upon you to explain that. The problem, and I just wrote this down yesterday as I was coaching several different people, because one of the comments I hear is, I don't want to have to manage them. (laughs) I just wrote it. I read it as I just, as I wrote it yesterday. I don't want to have to manage them. This is the, so we get into resistance. Like I shouldn't have to tell them this. They should just know. But they don't know. So you have to tell them. <laughs> and it's like, you know, my girlfriend, Brooke Castillo, we were, she was on podcast or I was on her podcast not long ago. And she said, you know, I finally figured out how to get people to read my mind. I have to write it down. <laughs> and then people can literally read my mind, right? And so if you stay in resentment of that, you're not going to get ahead as a leader. You have to acknowledge that people do not think like you. People do not see the world like you. People don't have the same level of experience as you. They don't have the same level of commitment as you. And that's all okay. So if you want something done a certain way, you have to spell it out. Now, if you spell it out and you know you did a really good job and they still don't deliver, now we can hold them accountable to that, right? But so many of the people, when I first start working with them, my clients, they don't know that they've even been clear. So they don't even know what to do with people on their team. Like, I, it's probably my fault. I'm like, it probably is. Let's start there. Let's tighten up your expectations and get really clear. Then we'll know if they can deliver or not. 
So then for the accountability piece, then mm-hmm. once we make sure that we're clear and we've communicated, underlined the results <laughs> and <laughs> when we want to have it and how, if we want, if we want to say, you know, how we want it to be done. So once we've been clear on that and then, but something is missed, something is overlooked, then what does that accountability piece look like? Because I mean, they could be a really great all-star, but maybe there's one area mm-hmm. or, you know, you mentioned the minor things that kind of keep adding up. How do we address that? Yeah. So it depends on, so it's funny you say the all-star. I just want to start with that because a lot of people have like hitters, right? People who are high performers, but they're a train wreck in other parts of the business. And that's why the values are so vital because they have to be as important as production. If the only thing that you value is production, then you will get numbers, right? But it's not going to be sustainable in a system that's growing because it makes a mess for everybody else to clean up. And that just gets exhausting. It gets to be too much, right? So your values have to counterbalance the production expectations you have of people. So to answer your question then in terms of accountability, this is what everybody always wants to know is like, what am I supposed to do if they don't do their, if they make a mistake, do I fire them? You know, like is it, 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 that, of course that's extreme, but that's what everyone sort of goes to. And I always suggest, how about we just start with telling them, <laughs> right? Because I know I'm laughing, but a lot of people don't even tell people that they didn't do a good job. They just fixed it and never address it because so many of us are so uncomfortable with any kind of feedback. It doesn't sound like you are at all, but right, like that's really common (laughs) to just ignore it and hope it gets better. That doesn't work. So the first kind of accountability is, hey, you put together this presentation for me. There's about 12 typos. You've got to fix that by the end of the day today. Get it back to me, right? Then in a one-on-one, I might talk to this person and say, look, I know that you were working on this presentation. There were a lot of typos. That's really a concern for me in the future. We've got to really flesh out what's going to be your process to make sure that you don't submit a final product to me that has typos in it. What do we think that could look like? I certainly have some ideas, but I'd like to hear yours first. And you see what the employee says. Then the key to accountability, right, is follow through. So if they say, well, I'm going to run it through spell check and I'm going to have, you know, Joyce proof my PowerPoints before I get them to you, then I am going to put down on my calendar, like, when is your next PowerPoint that you're working on? They'll sell me next Tuesday at three. I'm going to make sure I close that loop. Did you follow your process to make sure there's no typos in here? I'm using that as a basic example, right? But the engagement that is required of us as leaders in terms of accountability is where we start to really know, is it them or is it me? Which is what I know so many leaders really struggle with. Like, am I the problem or are they the problem? Now, progressive accountability, accountability isn't just negative. It's also like you have your employee engage recognition. That's accountability. That's holding people to account for their production, for results. So that's good accountability, all of it. But when you start having consistencies of errors that are affecting the ability of the business to perform, that's when you have to decide how far will I take this? If it's causing rework and lost money, which is what every single person that you're paying should be delivering a result, 
They shouldn't be costing money. They are an investment to your business, not an expense. I know we put that payroll on the expense line, but I think it's an investment. And so you should be receiving a result from their contribution to the business. So a culture of accountability comes from consistent feedback and accountability. If you want people to know that they work on a team that focuses on being successful and winning, then you have to hold people accountable to those expectations. And the good news is the more you do that, the more you attract top talent. They want to work on that team because they don't want to work with a bunch of people who don't get their work done or are kind of you know, half-bake it and don't really do the best job. They just sort of phone it in. They don't want to work with them. They want to work on a team where everybody's really dialed. So that's how you build it. So even your acknowledgements, right? And recognizing employees is a part of a culture of accountability. Performance matters. So I'm going to acknowledge you for it. That's how you, you keep stressing why you're all coming to work, which is to deliver on a result. That's why employees have jobs in businesses. It's helpful. That's really helpful. Thank you for breaking that down. Sure. So when it comes to hiring, how do we know when we're ready for more growth with our team? I know as my team has grown, um, my business has grown over the last few years. Well, it feels like growth spurts where we, you know, all of a sudden everybody's feeling overloaded and but then there's the whole process of, you know, recruiting, finding somebody, hiring, training, and all of that. How do we know that we are actually ready to add another person to the team? <laughs> well, I guess the best answer and the most honest one is you never are. <laughs> and I I'm joking only because I know it's so right. It's just so hard to hire people. People really struggle with this. So You know, one of my rules of thumb is you either have more money than you have time or you have more time than you have money, right? And so if you are finding that you have more money than you have time to get work done, that's how we know it's time to hire someone. My rule of thumb is if you're making six figures, so whether I honestly think it's at 100K, but you know, some people are more like two or 300, you should have an assistant. And I do believe the first person you should hire is an assistant. I think it's the best hire to make as a new manager, new leader, newer, if you will, because it's how you learn how to manage and it's the most intimate role you're going to hire. Your assistant has to be able to know what you need, meet your expectations and deliver on them in a way that most other employees never will. And so I, you know, when I meet a a client who doesn't have that kind of support, I'm concerned because for two reasons, first of all, you need support. And second of all, that role is the role you're going to cut your teeth on as far as managing people and managing a team. And it's hard. It's hard to find a great assistant. And so going through the process of really thinking through, what do I need here? You know, my clients I work with get a job description template and there's all these questions I want them to ask. Like, this is how you think about what do you need here? What's the result you're looking for? What are the objectives here? What are the responsibilities? And then hiring is not a science. It is more of an art. Certainly there is a process to follow. I do think that the mechanics of writing a really good job description and posting matter the interview structure matters. I think you should trial people as often as you can and not just hire them. 
I think your interview questions, I know they need to be very reflective of the role that you are hiring for and your values, not just some interview questions you found if they sound good. And then you've got to have a really dialed onboarding plan. You know, what are you doing with folks when they start? We do a 30, 60, 90 day. So this is what you do in your first 30 days, your first 60 days, your first 90 days, so that people have a roadmap for how to succeed with you. So it's not to be taken lightly, but the truth is making good hires on the front end, it will change your life if you do it well. And it also makes you gain a little confidence in your ability to find good people. That's great. And then do you do a, you mentioned a trial. So how long should those trial periods, should they just be like a project or maybe like a trial period of, you know, 30, 60, 90 days? What do you recommend or does it, you know, depend on the position? It does depend. But I think if you can get, if you can get a 90 day trial, that's really good news. I do recommend you do a project when you're doing the interview because you just really want to see what people's quality of work is. But the trial is, you know, by day 60 some odd, you're pretty clear of whether or not this person is going to fit your business and you. And so I think it's the best way to go. You bring them in as a contractor for, for 90 days. And then if you want to hire them as an employee, you do that. Every state's a little different. But, you know, once you bring someone in on as an employee, that changes the game entirely in terms of your responsibility as a leader. And so especially if you're new, I always recommend you start with contractors, not going directly into becoming an employer. I do think there's a lot more to learn there that I don't think you have to take on as a brand new, you know, if you're, if this is your first or second hire. But that's just my advice. That's what I recommend. That's helpful. Thank you. And then let's say we we start with somebody and maybe they've passed their trial period and we felt, you know, really confident, but then they're you know, we're unsure if this is going to work out. Mm-hmm. I've heard the term, you know, hire slow, fire fast. Yep. At what point do you make that decision or do you try and maybe, you know, see if they're, you know, just on in the wrong seat on the bus and try and move them around? What is your philosophy on that? Well, so you just said a couple things. So let me just address the wrong seat on the bus. That can happen Here's how we know if somebody's in the wrong seat of the bus. They have incredible skills. They're just in the wrong job. I'm not a huge fan of moving people around because if they can't perform in one, you want people who are results-oriented and they deliver results. But every now and then we hire someone as like a you know digital marketer and they're better at writing copy or something. I don't know, making it up. So then we put them in that role because they're just so good at it, but they have great attitude. They're aligned to your expectations and your values. I have an analogy that I like to use a lot, which is I believe as the entrepreneur, you should define the game you're playing and how you win. And then you stack the team with the players that help you win that game. Versus where I meet a lot of my clients, they'll say, this is my team what game should I be playing? And they try and match the team to the game instead of saying, no, 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 this is actually the game we're playing. And then because it usually can mean, you know, some of my clients who are at two, three, five, eight million, there's a lot of shuffling that has to happen on that team. And sometimes people have to go because we also know the people you start with are not going to be the people you finish with. There is movement because as you grow as a founder, 
your needs and your business's needs will change and not everybody will come with you. They won't be able to, and they also won't want to. And that's normal. Okay. So then, you know, I think you should fire quickly. I just fired someone today. I don't think it's a personal process. So that therefore for me, it's okay. Like it doesn't, I don't not like people. I just want work done well, right? So it's never personal. I don't want to be mad at someone to fire them. And in fact, I think it was Brene Brown that I read this in her Gift of Imperfection. She talked about, you know, managers need to blame their employees in order to hold them accountable. And that's a problem, right? We don't want to come from negative emotion when we fire someone. But what I would say, you know, the person I let go was new. And so it was just like, no, this isn't working. I could tell immediately, I'm like, this isn't going to work out, right? I'm not going to spend the next two months trying to figure this out. Other people that you've had on the team, you owe them, I believe, and your business to mitigate risk, the investment in structured feedback sessions with prove, you know, measurable results that they need to deliver. And if they can't do that, then we do need to let them go. So depending on where you are, right? If you've had someone on the team who you just, they're just not pulling their weight, then what you have to do is if you haven't been doing one-on-ones, we got to dive in. We got to make sure the expectations are clear. We got to make sure that they have clear, measurable goals. And then we do the follow-through with them for 30 days or what have you and make sure that they really can't deliver or were they just missing key insight, key information from you key feedback that was preventing them from being able to be successful. So we have to make sure we know that first and then we let them go if they're not the right fit, if they're not able to deliver in the job. And how do we approach that conversation with grace? Um, Because that can be, you know, you mentioned at the start that you coaching people through difficult decisions. So how do we approach that? Well, I love that you use the word grace. That's always my, like, if I don't feel love and grace, I'm not going to have the conversation yet because I don't ever want firing someone to feel like anger or resentment or frustration from me. So if we come back to my sort of perspective on why we have employees, right? Are we hire people to come work in our business to deliver a result? We are not hiring people to have employees. And I know most entrepreneurs listening to this have never, didn't wake up and think, yay, I can't wait to employ people in my business, right? Like that wasn't probably a driving factor. So we have to keep in mind that the reason that they are in your business is transactional and it's to deliver a result. And so if you design your performance systems to reflect that, it's not just that you're firing them, it's that they aren't delivering and it should be very obvious to them. It shouldn't be a surprise. Right. And so I always like to imagine like, oh, we're on, the, we're on the same side of the desk, like, oh dear, oh dear, you know, Lucy, this isn't working, right? And so the conversation for me is always based in facts. You know, for the last three months, we've been evaluating your performance here you know, in our one-on-ones, I've been asking you to do these things and you haven't delivered on them. And so today is your last day or two weeks from today. We'll pay you through two weeks. You know, everybody gets to figure that out. But I make terminating people based on evidence. 
So if you don't have evidence, all you have is your opinion, (laughs) don't fire them. Because first of all, it puts you at risk as a business, right? We don't fire people because we think they don't care about their job or they, we think that they're being lazy or we think that they're not really working very hard. It has to be tangible and measurable. That's great. Thank you. Of course. Chris, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I am so excited to share this episode with everybody. Can you please share where people can find you, where they can follow you? Your, please share about your podcast. I love your podcast. Yeah. All the places. Okay, cool. So uh, we'll start there. My podcast is called Lead Your Team. Uh, You can find it on anywhere that you listen to your podcast, iTunes, everywhere else. My website is chrisplackey.com, P-L-A-C-H-Y, chrisplackey.com. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And you can also connect with me on Instagram at chrisplackeycoach. And so, yeah, I offer, you know, I do some one-on-one coaching, private one-on-one coaching with seven-figure entrepreneurs. And I also have a program called the Founders Lab, which is more of a group coaching support masterminding program. So those are the real ways to work with me and connect with me. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been just tremendous. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to thank Chris once again for joining me on the podcast today and sharing her insights with us. It's a huge honor for me to have Chris on the show. I love her podcast and I highly recommend it. This was a jam-packed episode, so I'd love to hear your biggest takeaways. Share those with us in the comments at monicalouie.com slash 59, or you can tag us on Instagram. I'm at Flourish with Monica, and she is at Chris Plackey Coach. You can find all the links and resources that Chris and I mentioned in this episode at monicalouie.com slash 59. Thank you so much for joining Chris and me today. If you are ready to scale your business with Facebook ads, then check out my free Facebook ad starter kit. You can find that at monicalouie.com slash guide. The starter kit takes you through these six simple steps to create campaigns that convert. Plus there's an awesome checklist so you can make sure you've got everything you need before you jump into the ads manager. And if you're like me, then you love a good checklist. And if you're interested in learning more about how my team and I might be able to help you with your Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest ads, go to monicalouie.com slash WWM. We have information there about our services. As I mentioned, I'll have all the links and resources that we mentioned today in the show notes, which you can find at monicalouie.com slash 59. And if you found this helpful, please leave a rating and review so that more people can find this podcast. It truly helps get the podcast found by more people. And subscribe so that you can be notified when the next episode comes out. Brand new episodes come out every single Thursday. And next week, I've got another fantastic interview heading your way. My guest has built an incredible seven-figure online business and has been an inspiration to me and thousands of others online. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. Please join us for next week's episode of the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. That's all for today. Take care, stay healthy, and let's flourish. Flourish.